You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Todd Gardner, who is running .NET in production to power a service that lets you find and fix JavaScript errors. Todd, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Nick. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your site? Absolutely. Thanks. Uh, My name is Todd Gardner. I am a uh, web developer of of many different technologies and trades uh, from the St. Paul, Minneapolis, Minnesota area of the United States. Uh, I have been a freelance web developer for many years and uh, about five years ago, decided to build my own thing and started a, a small company uh, where we provide error monitoring services for front-end applications. It's, a, it's called TrackJS, and uh, we built it for the purpose of helping our clients who were at the time building a lot of JavaScript apps. Uh, we started at the time where everybody seemed to be wanting to build a really thick client web application. And many of them were doing it for reasons that they shouldn't have. Uh, But it was popular and it was trendy. And so everybody was doing it. But all of these applications would break in unpredictable ways. Because although the tooling for monitoring and logging on server-side applications is pretty robust in, in just about every technology stack, for JavaScript on the client, it was really lacking. It was really hard to understand. And there wasn't a de facto way to do it. So we set out to to build a, a way to do that. Um, and so over the last six years, we've kind of learned and, and grown and, and built a service that I'm really proud of at this point. Nice. So is this something that you started developing on your own? Yeah. So I was working with a couple of other contractors on a couple of projects. And uh, we had a really good working relationship. We worked really well together. And so I pitched them my idea um, at, a, at a conference of like, hey, I have this idea for an error monitoring service. We take out like these things that we built for these companies. What if we extracted those bits and or those ideas and we built a service around that that we could bring to any of our clients in any company? And, uh, and they really loved that idea. And so we started working on this nights and weekends, kind of moonlighting um, to build up the service. And so over the course of two or three years, uh, that service kind of grew to the point where we no longer needed to do consulting work anymore. And we were able to focus entirely on on building out TrackJS. Wow, that is awesome. Yeah, I love when you, when you can kind of just sit back and work on what you want to work on. Yeah, it's it's very different. I actually feel like building something for my myself that I own and I derive income from has really changed what I think about what's right in software. Uh, when I was a, a consultant, you know, there's so many layers of, of separation between you and the actual business and the customers that are paying for money or uh, paying money for the, for the product or for the service. And so you kind of lose a little bit of what's really important. Uh, it's very easy to fall into things about like, here's everything you need to test or here's how a system should be built. And you forget about things of, well, we don't really know if this is the right thing yet. So maybe we shouldn't be spending all of this time polishing it. 
so you know in a way like building this myself has really changed kind of my whole approach to software from when I was working in big companies. Right. Yeah, now cuz you're sort of on the hook for figuring out, you know, what should be developed, not just developing it. Right. And I don't really want to spend a lot of time coming up with the perfect design of something that I don't know if it's even a good idea yet. Yep. So just to give some context here, you mentioned, uh, you know, you're able to work on this full time because you're able to support yourself. We don't need to get into revenue numbers, but what type of traffic are we dealing with for the site? So traffic for like the main application? Yeah. Like how many daily visitors do you serve? Like how many people are using it? Oh, sure, sure. So the main uh, like web application um, is for developers to understand what is the traffic going to their sites. So there's a couple of different ways we could we could measure that. In terms of how many developers come into our site and actually use it, I would say several thousand a day are coming into our site and, and actively engaging with it. But um, the, the system itself, most of the bandwidth, most of the uh, horsepower behind our system isn't about serving that UI. It's about... Uh, protecting the applications that those developers are building, because part of the system is a bit of a, a bit of JavaScript that they put on their sites, that I then capture analytics and error data from their sites and pull it back into ours, ingest it, normalize it, and store that data. And so the bulk of our system is about dealing with that information pipeline, which amounts to um, thousands of errors per minute coming in our front door. Uh, okay, so it's similar to maybe how you would install uh, something like Discuss. You just drop a snippet on your site and you're kind of off to the races, or is there a little bit more? No, no, it's actually even simpler than Discuss because you don't have to make any UI allowances for us. Uh, you include our agent on, on your site. There's no UI. The user is never aware that it's on the page. They're never impacted. Um, and then we start collecting anonymous metadata about about how the user has interacted with your page. And if an error happens, we send that data out so that you can see history of how did the user end up in this error situation. So think, think like Google Analytics, but more for the developer to understand how their site breaks and without any of that nasty privacy invading crap that Google tends to do. Yeah, no, that sounds like a really useful service because even debugging errors in development is kind of tricky on the front end, right? It's like you just throw up the dev tools and look at the console and kind of just poke around. But then in production, it's like, yeah, there's a lot of things that you turn off because you don't want to expose certain things. So yes, it's nice to be able to have some way to get to that. And it might be that the error happened in a situation that you can't quite recreate with your native tooling. So it might be happening on a browser that you don't have. It might only happen on an operating system that you don't run. It might only happen on a slow network that you have a hard time recreating. There can be lots of situations where uh, an, there is a known error in your code, but you don't recreate it on your fast connection running the latest version of Chrome on your Mac. It might only happen on Firefox, on Windows, on a slow connection. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point, and those are the hardest ones to track down. And that's what we try to do. That's what we're trying to share that kind of information with, with all the developers that use us. Okay, so let's start getting into how you develop the site. So you mentioned that you are using .NET. Yeah. Uh, which, which language are you using, and is that .NET Core, or is that something else? Well, so TrackJS was written, uh, or we started writing it over six years ago. 
And so at that time, uh, .NET Core was was still not a real thing. Uh, it was, I think people were talking about it. It was, in, it was in beta or there was a release candidate or something like that. But it didn't quite seem ready for prime time. And so we did not write it in .NET Core. We're writing it in, you know, the old-fashioned .NET. I think they call it .NET Standard now. I'm not entirely sure what the nomenclature is. Microsoft tends to change it every six months on me. It's it's the old .NET framework that that the TrackJS was written in, uh, and we wrote it in C Sharp uh, largely because that is the language that uh, myself and and my partners were really familiar with. Uh, as a consultant, we had spent a lot of time and effort uh, building C Sharp applications for big companies. It's kind of one of the predominant languages in our area for for like the Fortune 500 companies. And so we were uh, .NET consultants. It was kind of uh, uh, natural to us. And when we started up the project, I remember we had this conversation about, well, what should we write TrackJS in? What We're starting this new code base. What should we do? And we'd been kicking around some ideas of like, oh, maybe we should write this in Go. That's kind of a, a new cool language. Or maybe we should write this in Node because we're a JavaScript thing. Maybe we should write this in JavaScript. And we weren't particularly skilled in Go or Node or Python or, or any of the other kind of big languages. And so we had this debate that came down to, well, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to create a project for us to learn another technology? Or are we trying to create a product for its own sake? Because if we're trying to do the former, well, then it's not really about building TrackJS. It's TrackJS is kind of a side effect of learning the language. If we're trying to build TrackJS, we should do it in the way that we think we can go as fast as possible, which is .NET. And so that's kind of how it how it shaked out. Is it's not I think the .NET is particularly well suited, although I, I like C Sharp and I like the .NET landscape a lot. Um, it was more that that's where we all could go fast in. Like that's we wouldn't suffer any uh, environmental or or program uh, programming friction while doing it. Whereas I think if we'd picked another language, we would have spent at least some time fighting to understand the environment that we were working in. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point to bring up because I'm sometimes guilty of oh, well, you know, I kind of like this new tech and I want to learn it. And like, what's the best way to learn it? It's like, well, building like some real type of application. So it's very easy to go down that rabbit hole of like, yeah, I'll learn something new just to build the product. Yeah, that would add a, a ton of time to development time, right? It's like to get even up to speed on something new like Go or Node if, with no prior experience, what are you looking at there, right? Like three or four months just to get to that point where it's like you're just above ground zero. Right, right. And then it's very tempting that when you're you're learning a new a new tech that you might you might go off and just play and like ooh you discover some new shiny bit and you're like I'm going to go and build this feature build this part of our application using using this new thing that I just discovered and uh, and that's really more about your discovery than whether or not that's the right tool for the job kind of thing and we wanted to minimize that we were we were making a conscious choice that this wasn't necessarily about learning a new tech stack because there's already going to be so much 
learning that need to happen. So many unknowns in setting up our overall architecture and getting into this business that we'll need to to suss out that we didn't want to just add more to that pile. Yep, that makes sense. Now, speaking of architecture, maybe, do you want to talk a little bit about how your app is set up? Is it a monolithic app or do you have it broken up into a couple of different services? Uh, there's definitely uh, different services involved, but I would describe it as more of a monolith. Uh, it, we definitely do not have what I would describe as a microservice approach. Um, even though that was uh, the popularity of that was growing at the time that we were, were building out TrackJS, uh, we opted not to do that, mainly because we saw the, the advantages of a microservice architecture felt more on the people side of the spectrum than the tech side, as in having lots of little services that are independently deployable works great if you have lots of independent teams that work independent that work separately. Uh, and we didn't have that. We had a team of three that were working together closely. And it felt like the overhead of deploying multiple things uh, or of creating that those separations wouldn't really help us in any way. Now that said, we do still have some different bits of our architecture um, it's not just one single application that runs everything, uh, just because different parts of our system scale in different ways. Um, so for example, uh, when we're capturing data, this is, is one of the, the part of our pipeline that we spend a lot, of, or part of our system that we spend a lot of time thinking about, is how do we capture data in from our customer sites as fast as possible? Without, so that we can show them that it's working from the time an error happens to the time they see it to the time we could potentially send an alert to them. We want to make that as fast as possible so that they can uh, understand and react to it. But we need to protect the system as well because sometimes we'll get put on very big sites or very buggy sites that can send us a lot of data really, really fast. And so how do we keep one noisy customer from impacting the system as a whole? Uh, and so bringing or solving those sort of things has led to some different kind of architecture patterns than how I would have normally approached this kind of problem. When you put our the TrackJS agent on the page, there's two different kinds of data that come to us. Uh, the first is uh, usage data. So every time the agent wakes up, it sends a little ping that says, hey, I just turned on for a session. And what that lets us do is it lets us tell our customers uh, how busy their page is, and compare that to the error volume they get. For example, you might want to know if a spike in your errors, was that because something new happened, or did your page just become busier that day? And so we need to kind of capture both. But usage data is a lot noisier than error data. All it really is is saying, hey, somebody visited this page. And, and, but we get a lot of those. So we handle that by simply making a request to an Nginx server. All that Nginx server does is write a log file that says, hey, you got, we got this request. And it just dumps it into a, special, a formatted access log file. This sort of usage data doesn't need to be super timely. Uh, we really roll it up to like an every, I think every minute period. Uh, and so when we're processing this data, we have a, a, a service uh, that is just a Windows service called a processor. 
Uh, and one of the jobs of this processor is it just goes out and it reads all these access logs and adds them all together and sticks and saves the data for how many times was this page accessed during this period. And so it's this asynchronous process happening behind that allows, uh, allows a separation between actually receiving traffic and storing it, which is one of the biggest advantages uh, when we're dealing with this volume of data that we can't necessarily control. Uh, the other bit of data that we'll get from uh, our customers is the actual error payload, which is quite a bit bigger, quite a bit more complex, and needs to be uh, needs to be saved faster than usage data. And so when that comes in, uh, we have a service called that we call Capture, uh, which is a simple .NET web service, and uh, there's several instances of those deployed. Uh, so that we can like load balance and, and have appropriate availability and capacity to handle traffic. But all that that really does is it takes a, a, a blob of data. It doesn't even deserialize it because that would be too slow. We just take a blob of data and we look to see, hey, is the customer flag that we got off the URL, is this real? Like, are they a paying customer of ours? And if it is, we shove it in a Redis queue. Um, and that's all it does. And it just does that as fast as it possibly can. The other, the other service, which is the processor again, this background Windows um, looping service, will go through, and there's several of these things running concurrently, will go through these queues and just start chewing through them and processing them and do the bulk of the actual work, like figuring out how many errors does this person sent? Is this a duplicate? Is this garbage? Is this within the appropriate limits that we've set. And if it once it gets through all of that, uh, it saves it into our data storage system. Um, we monitor this processor services like really closely. We have a ton of instrumentation in them, so we know exactly how long every step in that process takes. And we watch it very closely to make sure it stays under our maximum thresholds. Uh, typically, we can process everything that we've gotten in uh, within about 70, 80 milliseconds, uh, and that's kind of our target. But sometimes it'll spike up, like we'll get a big flow of traffic, and that might get delayed to, I mean, we've seen spikes where it slows down to as slow as one, one or two seconds. Um, uh, but overall, the system is, is very tolerant of the data volume that comes in our front door. Okay, speaking of those traffic spikes, maybe, if you do get overburdened on your end, will that affect your and customers like page load speeds, even if there's not an error? No, no. So the, the agent has its own smarts in it. So the agent, when it wakes up, it, it intentionally stays out of like the page loading cycle, you know? It waits until everything is done on the page. And then it, uh, after everything is like loaded and the user is interacting, then it sends a usage ping. It's because we don't want to be a bottleneck. Um, if at any point any any of the requests that come out of it fail to reach our systems, it assumes that, hey, I'm in a bad state, and it just kind of shuts itself down and doesn't keep trying. But the end user will never keep, will never be impacted by it. The worst impact of our service being down is maybe there's a gap in your error data. Um, but the end user is never affected at all. Okay. So a while back, you mentioned that you're using Nginx to capture that data, and then you're writing that out to an access log. 
So that's, that's a really interesting approach. So did you modify that log to be written out in like a machine consistent way, like, like a CSV file that you can read in later? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what we wanted was we wanted a way to like read data in from an HTTP request as fast as possible. And we didn't really want to write something custom ourselves to do this. And so Nginx is a really, really fast web server. And it already has all of the the configuration, all of the capability of recording every request it gets in its access logging format. And you can customize that access log format any way you want. So that that's what we did. We said, all right, uh, here's an Nginx config that when we get a request to this particular URL, um, we capture basically, or we write every line of that file as a JSON blurb. That's like, okay, here's where it came from, here's what time it came in, and here's the query string parameters that we care about. And it just writes line after line of that. Uh, it doesn't write anything else because we don't care about anything else. It just writes that, and it, we roll that log every minute. And so we're able to basically leverage the native load balancing capacities of, of the web and how fast a native web server is to really act as this front door for us. And uh, the file system, in a way, is just our queue. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really cool idea because, you know, what the Nginx set up, you can't really validate if they're legit or not, but you don't need to worry about that until you actually process it in the Redis queue with your other, I guess, service in the back end, right? Exactly. Validating that the request is correct is uh, is really slow, in fact. You want to do as little of that work as possible on the front door if you're expecting to get a lot of data in. Because if you spend all that time validating that the request is correct, you might not be able to respond to all of them. Yeah, I mean, you don't need to go into the gory details of this, but I guess what, you just grab all of that log data for time interval, and then maybe you do your database lookup to make sure all, all of those are valid requests. Is that how that works? We want to minimize pressure on our database. So when the processor starts one of its cycles, it actually just loads an, uh, all of the, the entire list of, of valid customers into memory and says, all right, here's my customer lookup. And then it starts zipping through that file and it says, all right, was for every file or for every line in that file, is this customer in my look in my in memory right now? Yes, great. I'll process it in. I'll add the appropriate counters. If it's not, I'm going to throw it away. And so this loop runs every you know few milliseconds. So uh, I'm just trying to reduce that pressure on on that data storage system. So then I guess though you also probably have another service where the developer who installed this script, do they have some capability of going to your front end to look at that data and search through it and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So that's the that's the reporting side of the system. And so that is a um, that is another .NET application uh, written in uh, in ASP MVC, uh, model view controller kind of uh, system, the old one. I think we're using like version five, I think. But uh, so that is a, a web UI where our customers who are the developers at these companies can log in and they can set up or they can view what are the errors, what are the traffic, what does the, uh, what are, what is the data in, from our error volume look like right now. Um, so we keep, uh, we keep every error record individually uh, and we store it in Elasticsearch. Uh, and what that lets us do uh, is we produce very granular uh, reports and counts on people's error data. Um, so when you log in, we can show you 
hey, here's every error that had this message. Here's every error that had this browser or from this operating system or from this user. And we can produce these really fine-grained um, reports and counts that because we're rolling up all the individual granular data. And so it, it allows for like these really powerful reporting uh, situations where you can see exactly what are the aspects of your system that are that are causing the most trouble. Right. Okay. So maybe to try to visualize your architecture setup, you kind of have Nginx capturing everything. Then you have some background worker tool that validates those requests. And then once those validated ones are verified, you save them to Elasticsearch, and then you have the reporting tool that reads from that. Yeah, that sounds pretty right. Cool. I'll go with pretty right is good enough. <laughs> <laughs> now, this uh, reporting tool, I'm not familiar with ASP.NET. Do you have this set up to be like typical server render templates with sprinkles of JavaScript, or is this mostly like a front-end app with an API backend? Uh, the former, the former. So I would just, ASP.NET um, in many ways is a .NET copy of the Ruby on Rails patterns. So it's uh, like you have controllers and models and views kind of thing. Um, we do most of our rendering server side. Uh, so when a user hits our, hits our application, we mainly send down nearly complete HTML back to them. Uh, but then we augment that on the client side. We have um, some like uh, there's a what we call the filter bar, which is uh, this powerful way that users can like navigate and, and drill in on their data. And there's just a lot of interactivity there that we don't want to do page reloads on. Uh, and so that's a React application there that composes that and, and figures out what we need to do. And so there's a handful of other like small things in the UI that do client-side rendering. But I would say the bulk of it is, is server-side. Now, even though we're doing the bulk of it server-side, we... Uh, the application feels very fast to interact with because we use a pattern called PJAX uh, in most of our navigations. And what PJAX is, if you haven't seen that, um, you've probably experienced it because most of GitHub uses a PJAX pattern, is when you click on something, it's making an AJAX request to your server and it's getting fully rendered HTML back of either the entire page or a subset of your page. And it gets that HTML back and then you use JavaScript to just swap out the visible part of the page with new markup. And so it's not a full page load, but you've essentially asked for a new page and then you do the swap out. And it feels fast because um, the browser doesn't have to reparse the head tag. And usually you don't have to redraw your like navigation frames. You're just redrawing the main contents of the application that would have changed. Yeah, I know. PJAX is amazing. And there's also Turbolinks as well. Have you ever heard of that one? I have. I don't entirely know what are all of the difference between PJAX and Turbolinks though. I'm not an expert in both, but it's one of those things where it's like, if you're trying to speed up your app and you have a server rendered app, that is almost probably your best like bang for the buck that you can do to make it fast, right? It's basically just dropping in a JavaScript snippet or a library. Very, very little code necessary on the server side, like if you want to process forms and you're off to the races with like a very fast site. Yeah, it's it's really amazing. Like I, I, I've put it in a bunch of sites since then and it's really magical how fast it can make a static or like a server side rendered page. We use it on um, 
on our docs site as well, which is just a Jekyll site on GitHub pages. And even though the server is like totally naive of it, like it's still sending whole HTML down because it can't, we don't have any capability of doing server-side logic there. Uh, it's sending whole HTML down, but the JavaScript can, you know, pull out the necessary bits to replace and it just feels so fast. Yeah, funny enough, the uh, runningandproduction.com site is a Jekyll site just being served with Nginx and I'm also using Turbolinks there. And yeah, people have said when they transition between the pages, it's like, how is that so fast, but it's not like a client-side application? Pretty cool. Okay, so I guess going back to your tech stack a bit, you mentioned that you're using Redis and Elasticsearch and Nginx. Are there, are there any other uh, tech choices that compose your application? Let's see. Um, I'd say one of the, the more interesting things that we do is is not what tech choices that we have, but how we choose to like overutilize them. So what I mean by that is that uh, we have a fairly small team uh, at TrackJS. Uh, there's, not, there's three developers, and we think it's very important to maximize our impact as, as a company. And we can't do that if we spend a lot of our time um, maintaining our systems and doing like infrastructure updates and all those, those sort of things. Uh, and so we try and minimize the requirements that would put us down that path. Like we don't want to sign up for work that's, that's going to create a bunch of maintenance in our system. And so we know, uh, we knew that we were going to need Elasticsearch for what we wanted to do. And so we're like, well, we're storing a lot of data in Elasticsearch. Why would we want to store data somewhere else? Uh, we have Elasticsearch. We, we know that we're going to need it. I don't want Elasticsearch and a database. Why don't we use Elasticsearch as our database? And so in addition to like our air storage, which is what we really need Elasticsearch for, we use Elasticsearch for everything. We treat it as a document storage system for all of our records, our customer records, our user records, our logging records, um, everything else. Um, and it's not because it's the best tool at that, but it's capable of doing that. And by using it as such, now I don't need to maintain another, like a, a Postgres database. Uh, we made similar choices with, with Redis. So we knew we needed Redis for um, like session caching. So we have multiple like web servers that serve our reporting UI. In order for that to work seamlessly, we needed to have a um, distributed place to keep session data. And Redis is really great at that. So we already had Redis in our infrastructure. And so when we needed to implement this queuing system for our air data, there's lots of other technologies that are better suited to making a queue of data, but Redis can do it. And it's really fast at it. We just had to add a little bit of our own elbow grease to make it to make it work. Um, and to us, that was more worthwhile, so that we had fewer building blocks in our overall infrastructure that we needed to manage. Right. Yeah, that makes total sense. And it's kind of cool to see that you're using it as your primary. And it, it takes a little bit of tuning to to do that right. Like, so you split out your different indexes for different um, different kinds of data. And you need to be aware of like the refresh periods and like tune it so that maybe it's not like our customer index isn't quite as good at actual searching, but it refreshes itself a lot so that we have the freshest data in there. Um, and we have to be very cognizant of like keeping our data backed up 
because we know that our Elasticsearch is the source of truth. Uh, a lot of people don't think of their Elasticsearch as the source of truth, and so they'll just like throw it away and reproject it from their original data. Um, but Elasticsearch has really has really pretty mature backup and, and restore tooling uh, around it if you want to use it as your primary store. Right. Yeah. Very cool to hear. Now, when it comes to using Redis as your queue, is there some library in the in the .NET universe that allows you to set that up without you having to hopefully put in too much elbow grease? Um, there probably is a library, but I think we ended up building it ourselves all the same, uh, just because it's not that hard of a concept. Like there's, there's a, a key in Redis that we write to and the records that we put in there have, you know, a date and we don't really need to, honestly, it doesn't need to be a real queue. Like we don't need all of the concepts of a full queuing system because when we're writing into it, we're just, we need to push another row for every error that we, that we get. But when we read it, we're just going to read all of them. Like, we're just like, all right, give me everything. And I will process everything that you have in your, in, in the bucket right now. And we'll, we'll let it run. And so based on that kind of design, we didn't really need much around much tooling around Redis. We have like a, a class around it that basically handles these two concepts of like pushing into it and then reading everything from it. Um, we, it's a little bit more complicated than that because we have like some parallelism stuff in there so that we can have multiple people working on, on the queue at the same time. But that's the fundamental idea is we write to it many times and then we read it all, process it, and it's gone. Okay. So when it comes to minimizing the tech stack that you have, you mentioned that you use Nginx to deal with uh, gathering that initial data. Do you also use Nginx for serving all of your static files and perhaps even acting as a load balancer with, it, with SSL certificates? We do, we do not. Uh, so the Nginx component is, uh, is somewhat separate from the rest of our architecture. And the only reason it was that was just that at the time we were building it um, and with the, the .NET ecosystem, it didn't really make sense to put Nginx in front of IIS. Uh, which is the Microsoft, you know, web server that natively runs uh, .NET libraries. There just didn't seem to be a lot of advantage in doing that. Um, we did consider it for load balancing, as you suggested. However, um, after we kind of played with a few options, we ended up doing uh, just DNS round robin for our load balancing, which isn't perfect, but it is simple. And what I mean by that is, there's um, there's three web servers right now that handle that handle our, our web UI, and so if you look up uh, the DNS records of my.trackjs.com, which is the the subdomain that handles that app, uh, you just see the A record has three addresses, and so the the DNS system will kind of shuffle the order every time they're requested, and so it's not perfect, but we get an approximate load balance across which server people are talking to. And web browsers are usually clever enough that if they get three responses back and one doesn't respond, it just goes to the next one. And so it's not perfect, in which by which I mean that when we do have to take a web server down, sometimes a subset of customers will see like a 404 page and before they hit refresh and they go to and it'll reload with another one. But it doesn't happen very often. And the setup of this is just so incredibly simple and 
that it felt like an okay trade-off for what we were doing. Right. Yeah, no, that that is a simple but very effective setup. Like, it'll give you way more robustness than just having, you know, one server hooked up to it. Yeah, and I mean, we could we could do better. Like, you could do, uh, like, blue-green failover situations and stuff like that if we had a proper proxy in front of it. But for us, it just didn't seem worth the... Um, the maintenance complexity to get that for how often we needed to do it. Right. So how do you deal with things then where you deploy something like a new version of your application? Do you do a rolling restart to one of those servers at a time or do you do all three at once? We do all three at once because um, this is something that, that Microsoft IIS and like the .NET ecosystem is just really, really good at is we can just drop new like a new code base behind it, and IIS handles it transparently. It just switches to the new version for the next request that comes in. Ah. And so we can really just push new binaries without any downtime at all. The only time that we need to take one of our web servers offline is if we need to um, uh, do patching or maintenance on the underlying operating system. Yeah, that's very cool to hear. So I have not run IIS in production since about maybe 1999 <laughs> with ASP Classic, but that was a long time ago. But it's pretty cool. It sounds like it's very similar to how Apache would work. You just drop new files in, next request, boom, and you're deployed. Right, yeah. There's a lot of things that IS is, is terrible at and the Microsoft ecosystem is not good at, but this is one thing that, that is actually very, very good is deployment of, of, uh, of new code is really seamless there. Okay, and we're definitely going to cover your deployment process in a bit. But let's talk a little bit about cloud hosting providers. So where do you have your servers hosted on? Uh, today, we are hosted on uh, dedicated hardware, which is a bit of a story in itself. Uh, when we first started uh, TrackJS, we were hosted on Microsoft, Microsoft Azure. Uh, and that was largely because, hey, it's the cloud. Uh, we're writing in .NET. Microsoft is .NET. And Microsoft was very generous to startups and offers a lot of like free credits on their system to get startups to use it. And so that's where we started. We started our, our, the early versions of TrackJS were very much built in that kind of Microsoft platform as a service ecosystem. We took advantage of like their higher level services like table storage and queuing systems and stuff like that. Uh, but over over the first like I'd say year and a half of operations, we grow to regret some of those decisions, not specifically on Microsoft, but more of like platform as a service and depending on somebody else's cloud. At the time, there were some availability issues on Microsoft Azure that they've all worked out since, but uh, were quite frustrating at the time. Uh, we would see like the response times on some of our platform services like the, the services from Microsoft that we were depending on, the response times would change wildly. Like usually we'd be able to like get something in 12 milliseconds and all of a sudden it was taking 800 milliseconds and it was throwing the timings of our whole system like off balance. And we would talk to them about, like we would try and get support to understand why things were going on, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't talk to you. Like we were on, you know, cheap plans <laughs> You can't, like, they won't let you talk to support on cheap plans or you have to, like, do a lot to prove that it's their issue before they'll talk to you. 
And so we would report things and it would end up being a bit of a fight with their support people. Uh, so much so that we had like this little informal network of other other like Azure users that we that we would like ping and would be like, hey, our table storage performance just hit the shitter. Like, what what does yours look like? And they would respond like, yeah, ours too. It's definitely their issue kind of thing. What we kind of came to the conclusion on was that when we depend on on the cloud, the big advantage that they were providing for us was um, that we didn't have to think at quite such a low level, but the support from them was so poor that when something went wrong, you it was totally opaque as to what was going wrong and when it was going to be fixed. Is all that we could really say is like, yeah, our system is offline because of this provider issue and I can't really do anything about it. Which as TrackJS grew and we got bigger and bigger clients, just became not an okay response. Um, and in one particular conversation we had with like a cloud architect, uh, they had said that it was our responsibility to load balance between like cloud provider regions. And that in order for us to solve these issues, we, we not only had to use one of their regions of Azure, we had to load balance our system across many of them. And to us, that really stank of like, I don't understand the point of the cloud then if I have to manage this myself. And so the path that that kind of pushed us down was, okay, I don't think this this is like something specific to Microsoft. I think any cloud provider is going to kind of have these this kind of issue. What are other options? And so we started looking out at like, well, what if we went hardware? How how does that what does that look like in a modern environment? And uh, we started learning uh, Ansible for infrastructure automation and saying, okay, what if we were to just rent hardware? or rent virtual machines or rent something and manage from the OS level up, what would that look like? Like what, what processes would we need to have in place? How do we deploy things? How do we patch things? How do we, when do we need to do some things? And we started kind of proving that out. Where we, where we ended up landing after, after a bunch of uh, iterations and a bunch of work was uh, renting uh, bare metal hardware from a provider called OVH. Um, I think their website's like ovh.net, which is a, they're a French company, but they have uh, data centers in a bunch of different places. Uh, most of our stuff is in a data center outside of Montreal, Canada. And it is ridiculously cheap for, for what I thought it was going to be. Like when we first kind of like proposed this idea, I think Eric, uh, one of my partners proposed this idea that we, that we rent hardware. And I was like, oh, that's gonna be way too expensive. And it's, it's really not. We pay like $180 a month for, for a server. And that server has like super high-end Xeon processors with like eight cores. And it has like 64 gigabytes of memory. And it has like two terabytes of solid state in it. And it has all the other, you know, server class hardware bells and whistles, which if you've if you've been developing on virtual machines for a while and then you have an opportunity to go back to bare metal hardware it is amazing how fast bare metal is like virtualization adds so much overhead in what it does that what we found was we added on some maintenance work for ourselves in in building out 
these Ansible scripts to like automate our infrastructure. And we added to our, a little bit to ourselves in that we need to maintain um, kind of the patching and maintenance of bare metal hardware. But what we got for it was our overall cost in, in from what we were paying in Microsoft Azure to what we were ended up paying for renting hardware dropped by 50%. So we cut our, we cut our costs in half going to hardware. And we bought, we overloaded our hardware so that our target is that we're using about 10% of our capacity. Um, so we like way oversubscribed to what we needed to do and still cut our costs in half. And the nature of our service isn't really very elastic. As in, I don't really need to scale from like five machines to 50 machines back to five machines ever. Like um, we have this pretty constant volume of data ingestion coming in from around the world. And so I don't really need any of the elasticity that I, I would get from the cloud. And I wouldn't say that this has been 100% without issue because obviously things go wrong. But what we see is that with a modern, well-managed data center, when something goes wrong with hardware, it's very obvious what it is. Like we'll lose a system and I'll get an email from our provider like within a half hour that says, yep, you lost dim slot two on this box a tech's on the way to replace it. And like, we know exactly what went wrong and an ETA to fix it. And when we compare that with, with the opaque, opaqueness that we would get from the cloud. So this ended up just being a better business process for us. Even though we took on a little bit more responsibility of our system, being able to know exactly what was going wrong and how long it was going to take to fix was was more reassuring for us than any of the advantages that we would get from the platform as a service providers. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And that's amazing to hear that your cost dropped in half, but you're still only at 10%. Like there's still so much room for growth in that, right? Right. And, and we do uh, one of the other processes that we needed to take on, which I guess we didn't really, it wasn't really new. It just changed is we had to do some more capacity planning work. And so uh, once a quarter, we would like look at our we look at our systems to stay and we, you know, make a bunch of judgment calls about whether or not we need to add capacity, where in our infrastructure we're starting to hit limits and we buy any new servers that we need, um, which I mean, we had to do that in uh, the cloud world, too. It was just kind of a different process. It was like when do we need to readjust our elasticity settings or add more nodes to whatever? Um, that's all very proprietary depending on which uh, which cloud provider you're working with. Right. So just to be clear here, you said you're paying about 180 a month for all of this. Like how many actual servers do you rent? Um, so 180 is, I guess, an average figure because we use different kinds of hardware for the different parts of our system. So, for example, one of these Nginx boxes doesn't really need much. It needs, uh, I think, I think they just have like two processors and eight gigs or 16 gigs of memory. Uh, they don't really need much. They just need some bandwidth. And so we pay, I think, less for those. I think we're probably only paying 100 bucks a month for those. Uh, but our Elasticsearch Elastic server nodes are quite beefy. Uh, and so we probably pay 240 or something a month. I don't know the exact figure. 
um, but we pay a little bit more for those. I think the last time I counted, we had 12 Elasticsearch server nodes. Uh, and, and it depends, like each part of our infrastructure, we use a different kind of box for it. Uh, that's kind of tailored to it. Like it's one of the off the shelf models that we can get from OVH. Um, and so I'd say we have like, I think we probably have like 30 servers overall at this point that we manage. Oh, wow. That was way off than what I was thinking in my head in not like a bad way or anything, but yeah, that's a lot of servers. Well, I mean, we have, uh, not all of those are production servers. So some of them, like we have a, uh, a scaled down version of our dev environment that our servers as well, uh, in that. And then we have a couple of like management things like, uh, our build, um, build and deployment servers and, uh, some of our mon- like our internal monitoring servers that we run. And so that's not all production, but I don't really know what the breakdown is between all of those right off the top of my head. Okay. So swinging back to what's powering these servers, what version of Windows are you running on them? Well, some of them are Linux. Like, so Elasticsearch is is running uh, Ubuntu Linux. I think we're running on 18.04, whatever that, that long-term support version is. Um, that's what we try and run uh, all of our Linux stuff at. We might have a few servers that still might be running 16 something, whatever the long-term support version of that is. But we have a current infrastructure push to like get everything up to 18. Uh, for Windows, I think we're running uh, Windows Server 2016, which is, I think, the, the, the most recent version of it still. We don't really like having those servers, honestly. Windows servers are, are kind of a pain in the butt to manage, and they require reboots when you do patching. And it's just, it's kind of a pain in the ass. Um, but with our current version of .NET, it's kind of the only option. Uh, we've been playing with the idea of doing uh, .NET Core for a long time, and we're currently experimenting with .NET Core on another project that we're doing. Um, but at some point, it would be it would be great to switch our main systems over and not have to maintain Windows servers anymore. Yeah, and then on top of that, I imagine there's, I guess, licensing costs, right? Or no? Um, not today. Not to, I mean... There are licensing costs, but most of our Windows servers uh, are still licensed under our old uh, uh, BizSpark license. So I, I mentioned that when we first started, we took advantage of a bunch of like uh, uh, things from Microsoft where they would give you uh, free or discounted licenses of their products as a startup. Um, and so when we were in that program, all of our Windows servers were were licensed there. And so the parts of our system that need to run Windows, which is the, the front-end UI of our reporting UI and the ingestion processing, those don't actually need to scale that much. I don't think we've purchased new servers in those areas. The parts that need to scale is we scale up our Redis cluster and we scale up Elasticsearch. And so most of the servers that we've added have been Linux servers. So if and when we do need to add a Windows server, if we needed to scale up from like three front-end servers to four, at this point, we would probably need to buy a Windows license for that. Um, but we have not done that in, in quite some time because that's just not part of our system that really feels a lot of pressure. Right. Now, before you mentioned that you're using Ansible, so I love Ansible. I've been using it for a really long time now to manage my own things. So how do you have Ansible set up? So we have a bunch of different things in Ansible. We, we do a limited set of Windows configuration in Ansible as well, even though it doesn't, like you can't like quite go from nothing to, to fully set up with Windows. You have to have kind of like a base image. 
but once you install like an SSL server in Windows, you can do a lot with Ansible. And so we, we've automated a bunch of our Windows tasks with Ansible as well. So like when we, do, when we need to do patching and reboot cycles, we have Ansible uh, scripts for, for handling that. Um, and when, like, if we were to stand up a new server, we know how to like configure IIS and get all the right packages installed with Ansible. Um, on the Linux side, it's a much better story because we can really go from like nothing to fully set up with Ansible, and it's that's pretty awesome. So it it we have like a Linux common role that pulls down like the 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 version of Ubuntu that we want and installs all the firewall settings that we want and installs all the the, the utilities and stuff that we want on it. And then uh, and then we branch off of that for, we have roles for a Redis node. So it'll, you know, install Redis, install the right firewall rules for that and, uh, and get it so that that Redis will join our Redis cluster. And same with Elasticsearch and stand up a new ES box, connect it to our cluster, uh, et cetera. There's a handful of like other roles we have for like niche things. Like we have a separate Elasticsearch cluster for our like uh, uh, management logs and stuff like that, uh, that we can uh, manage those as well. Basically all of our, all of the bits of, of infrastructure in our system, we've automated to be an Ansible role. So when we need to do capacity planning and we decide we need a new box of this type for this role in our system, it's pretty easy to set up. We, um, we do have to ask or make a request to OVH to get a server. And it's not being that it's, it's, real like bare metal it's not instant it's not like click a button in a web ui and it's there it's usually click a button in a web ui and then 48 hours later it's there but our system is uh like as i said not super elastic we can usually afford to do that so we make a request it's there in a couple of days we fire off our ansible roll at it and boom it's online and ready to go Right. Yeah. 48 hours really isn't that bad. I mean, that's a lot faster than what it would take to, you know, pick out some server parts on a website, buy it, assemble it, ship it out to a colo. Like that might take like a week or more. Yeah, that would. And that's what I was picturing initially when we uh, thought of going down the path of dedicated hardware. But that industry has matured right alongside with the rest of, of tech. And so I, I really think today that a lot of the benefits that people attribute to moving architectures to the cloud are really advantages of just the modernization of IT infrastructure. Right. So maybe we should rewind a bit here and talk a little bit more about your deploy process. So how do you get code from your dev box up into running on one of those servers or more? Sure. Uh, so our deployment, we actually automate uh, a lot of our stuff using a build server called TeamCity which is from, uh, from a, a company called JetBrains. Uh, so JetBrains makes like uh, IntelliJ and WebStorm and Rider and a bunch of like IDEs uh, for, various, for various languages. Uh, but TeamCity is their continuous integration server. And uh, we use it for lots of things. We use it for automating our builds, uh, automating our deployments, and for various other just like timed tasks that need to happen because it's scheduler and logging and like debugging capabilities are really, really great. So we put our, we keep our code in GitHub. Uh, we have like a private organization there that we keep our stuff in. Uh, and so when we check in to any of our different projects, cause we have, we have several different repositories for like the different kind of components of our application. But when we check into one of them, there is a, a, a build job that, you know, grabs it and, you know, compiles it and runs the tests and makes sure that everything is, is great and working. 
And then, um, and then usually we automatically deploy to our development environment anytime the build passes. And our dev environment is a like scaled down version of, of our production environment. Anytime we have a cluster in production, we still have a cluster in dev, but we'll just have fewer nodes. Uh, and they might be like a little bit lower end boxes kind of thing. And then our dev environment is usually kept pretty up to date. Um, so we we have uh, we back up our production environment every hour, and then as part of that backup job, we restore the latest backup to dev. And so dev is always just one hour behind production in terms of data. And we do this for two important reasons. The first is dev is is way more valuable to you when it's real data, when it's not just garbage in there from people testing. And so every hour dev gets like zeroed out unless we stop that from happening. Uh, but by default, every hour dev gets zeroed out and then replaced with, here's what was in production an hour ago. Wait, sorry, I hate to interrupt you, but when you say dev there, do you mean like a staging server or is this like your actual like development environment? Um, well, we really only have one. So we have our local boxes. So like I can run most of TrackJS like on my, on my computer. Uh, so if I'm like playing with a feature, I'm doing something like I, I can play locally. We call it our dev environment. And what dev is, is it's really the only other environment other than production. Uh, so it's what, it's what we do like acceptance testing in, right? Okay. So it's when, when one of our, us individually are saying, yep, I think this is ready for my team to like look at and play with, uh, we'll push it up to our, our dev environment. I guess that's probably not the best name for it. We probably should have called it our test environment, but that's just what we called it. So this this test environment, which I will refer to it as for the remainder of the show, I'll try. Uh, the test environment gets restored from production every hour so that we always have like this really fresh data. We can run our queries against uh, data that resembles production, uh, check performance, that sort of thing against it. Uh, the other thing that that does for us is we always know our backups work because you can't really know that a backup works until you've tried to restore it. And so we're always restoring our backups. We know that we could come back from them. Uh, and so that really helps with our disaster recovery planning kind of thing. Yeah, I was going to say that's like a genius move. It's like, yeah, you get to test all like every aspect of your application and backup routine. Yeah, yeah. So that... And it, it really helps to like understand what's going on in our system when we can like see things being backed up, restored, and we can use that data in real time. And so that's that's really great. So then when I, we want to go to production, uh, we have a, a team city job that we've set up. Usually, I mean, that depends a little bit on what we're doing, what the, the nature of that deploy looks like. Sometimes it's like X copying files somewhere and rebooting services. Sometimes it's... Uh, it's like executing SSH commands. Like it, it varies depending on what module of our of our system we're deploying. But uh, regardless of which one it is, it's all automated up into a Team City job uh, that we can deploy at will. Uh, we don't automate it today, uh, only because we don't need to do deployments that often. Uh, like m uh, being that we are a fairly small team and fairly cross-functional team, we're not always writing code. And when we're when we're when we're working on something, we're usually working on it together, and we want to control that flow. Uh, we ha we can totally deploy multiple times a day if we need to, um, but we just don't want to automate it because we want to be able to watch it happen so that we can check uh, and do like a little bit of just manual acceptance testing once something goes, make sure everything's still working. 
Yeah, no, that makes total sense. But you automatically do deploy to your uh, dev slash test environment, right? Yes. Yep. So anytime there is a a push to the master branch and the build passes, we deploy it to our test environment right away. Okay. Now, speaking about maybe error reporting or logging metrics, monitoring, keeping tabs on things, do you use any services for that or do you do that all in-house? Uh, well, of course, we dog food TrackJS on TrackJS. So we run our own error monitoring services on our front-end websites. And it's actually amazing how many issues that happen in your system manifest themselves as, as a front-end problem of some kind. Many, many times when there is an issue happening somewhere in our system, uh, we can actually see that happen in a TrackJS error report, like a, a API returned to 500 or a page didn't load fast enough or an error message was shown to the user or something like that. And so that's, that's pretty awesome. Uh, we also have our own monitoring, uh, like for the backend services, and we've rolled that ourselves um, because at the time we were building it, there wasn't really a good way to do it for all of the systems we had involved. I mean, today there's uh, error monitoring has has matured a lot, and we might make a different choice today than we would have uh, than we did then, but. I have some I have some opinions about error monitoring on server code that I don't know that is quite universal. So, for example, one of those is errors on client side code are not always real, and by that I mean it's not necessarily your problem when an exception happens on the client side. It could be that there is a unsupported browser. It could be that the user has installed a plugin. It could be that. It's just a bot crawling your site and doing garbage on it. There's lots of reasons why you can get an error on the client side code that you might not need to care about. And so dealing with signal versus noise and like understanding what the impact is of problems is a much more interesting problem on the client side. On the server side, that's your show. If something goes wrong, it's a problem. And so the biggest thing that we do is if there's an exception in our code, we route that message directly to our primary chat room. So we used to use HipChat, now we use Slack, because uh, that's what everybody uses now. Uh, we have one channel, and we feel pretty strongly about this, is that there's one channel. Like, we're not gonna look at lots of different places. There's one place to go. And we route our errors directly into that channel. And our rationale behind this is, you either care about it or you don't. Either it's an important error that we didn't expect that this would ever happen and there is an edge case that we're not handling and we need to deal with it, or we don't care about it. In which case, this shouldn't be an exception. We should just like bury it and stick it in a log file somewhere. Like it's not really an exception. Uh, and so by creating this focus, it really lets us focus in on where the real problems in our system might lie. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because I, I know I've been a part of some uh, freelance gigs where people have Slack channels set up and there's like, you know, 17 different channels to go about. And it's like, how do you, you know, it becomes a whole job just keeping track of that. Right. And usually they have one of those channels, which is dedicated to their, their logs and they dump like exceptions from their systems or logs from their systems into that channel. But like nobody goes and looks at it. It's, it's just a, a dumping ground that you put stuff in that you're not willing to pay attention to. And I think that's the problem. If it was important enough to send to your chat room, it's important enough to send to your real chat room so that you 
acknowledge it and figure it out and move on. Right. Now, actually, just to switch gears a bit, uh, talking about Slack reminded me of this. Your application does accept payments, right? Yeah, absolutely. People have to subscribe to our system um, to use it. Uh, It's like a monthly subscription fee. Right. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Like which payment gateways do you support? Oh, sure. Uh, uh, We really only use Stripe. Uh, So, you you know, we take uh, credit cards through uh, the Stripe payment gateway. Uh, We like we save the credit card number out into Stripe. Like it doesn't ever enter our system. We save it directly into into Stripes as a recurring uh, a recurring charge, uh, either every month or every year, depending on how you pay. And that's really that's that's really it. We uh, we don't have a very complicated setup around payments. Okay. Are you using the latest APIs like Payments Intense or something Ooh, else? Oh, I don't think so. I think we're still one version old on that, uh, and largely just because there wasn't anything uh, drastically that we needed to change there. Yeah, it's one of those things where I think if your business is in the EU, then you really need to do it. But if your business is in the US or somewhere else, then you can maybe get by without having to do it for a while. Yeah. And I imagine that we'll have to do it at some point. But largely things that are outside of our core business, we kind of wait for them to uh, become a problem that that slows our growth. If it's not something that a customer is clamoring for or that they need in order to move forward... Uh, and it's not part of our core business, we we tend to just kind of let that lie until it needs to be worked on. Right. So until you start getting emails where customers are like, hey, I tried to sign up, but my card was denied, then it's time to take some action. Yep, exactly. Exactly. Okay. So you mentioned, uh, you know, you kind of have your own solution for logging and metrics and things like that. But do you have any like external monitoring services checking to make sure like your web UI is working or? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so we use a service called uh, Monitus or Monitus. I don't actually know how they would pronounce it themselves. Uh, it's like uh, monitor.us is their website. I think they have a free version too. Uh, but basically that is our um, like kind of infrastructure and availability monitoring thing. Um, so they have an agent that we install on our Linux and Windows boxes that tells us things like, CPU and memory utilization and disk utilization and that sort of thing. And then they also have checks for, it lets us hit an HTTP or HTTPS endpoint and like send some data and measure the response. And it lets us check to make sure our certs haven't expired and all of those sort of things. So we have the system pretty wired up from from that aspect um, so that we get alerted if there's a CPU spike or we get... um, we know like when an endpoint isn't returning uh, 100%. Uh, we actually have a, have a kind of a, a little bit more complex uh, integration with them that we built where uh, we call it the error tracer. And essentially what it is, is it's uh, every minute the one of our Monetus um, HP endpoints actually sends an error with a known signature into our capture endpoint. And then uh, we have a, a service that we expose called status, which just checks to make sure that like all of the services that we use internally are available, all of our external services are available. And it just does like a, a little internal check to make sure that we think we're online. And one of the things that that checks is that we've received an error on this known signature within the last 60 seconds. And so we just call this the error tracer that we can make sure that we can send an error from the front door all the way in to, and it gets saved into our system um, by the end. Okay. 
yeah, that sounds like a pretty sweet setup. You have a lot of information coming in and ways to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. We, we've always felt that having that uh, instrumentation of our system and how it's operating in production is, uh, is really valuable. Okay. So let's say that uh, you were to redo all of this again today. Are you still happy going with the rented hardware approach and setting things up with Ansible and your overall tech stack? Absolutely. So there are, I don't have any regrets on that. So I mentioned earlier that we're building uh, a new service right now, kind of uh, we're taking advantage of this coronavirus quarantine and we're, we're building something new. So we're building a web performance monitoring tool. And the reason where we're building that separate is that I believe in like focused best of breed tools. I think a lot of tools end up getting kind of crappy when they overload themselves and become too many things to too many people. And so we're building a separate tool from this that is, uh, it's, it's going to be similar to TrackJS, but it does a slightly different thing. And the two could be used together if you want, obviously. Um, but as we build out request metrics, we're, we're reevaluating basically everything we did with TrackJS. And obviously our preference is to do the same thing because we know that it works and we don't want to take on unknown risk of something that we've never used before. But in a lot of cases, we're like super happy with how it works. So we're still rent or we're still going to uh, rent dedicated hardware from OVH. Uh, we're still using Redis. Uh, we're still using .NET, but we're running it on .NET Core. Uh, we're running Linux and Ansible and doing a lot of the same things we did because we're really happy with, with how they work. Yeah, that's awesome to hear, considering you started this uh, TrackJS like five or six years ago, right? So half a decade later, the tech choices that you chose are still very much good to use today. I think part of the, the reason why those tech choices are still good is one of the factors that we use when choosing tech is that it's boring. We like boring tech because boring tech is stable. Boring tech has gone through the production cases. And if boring tech breaks, it's kind of known how it's going to break. When you use something new and use something like that is hot and trendy, it's going to churn a lot. You're going to have to like chase it. You're going to have to like keep updating it. You're going to be the, the first person that runs into a new kind of problem. And we didn't really want to sign up for any of that. We didn't want to be the first to, you know, expose a new edge case in the framework. Uh, we kind of wanted to just, you know, focus on the problems that were going to be unique to our space and not sign up for new problems in a new technology. Yeah, totally. And on that note, like Ansible is one of my favorite tools. Like it's so rare that things go wrong. Like if you run an Ansible playbook against your server and it doesn't work, it's like that's such a super rare occurrence. It almost always works. And if it doesn't work, then it's usually some crazy Python 2 verse 3 compatibility issue. But all of that stuff is going to be ironed out eventually, I yep. hope. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app? Hmm. Best tips. Um, use boring tech. Well, I guess before, before even that tip, know what you're trying to do. Are you trying to learn a new technology and you're using a product as, as your, your avenue to learn that tech, or are you trying to build a product? Because that should inform your choices, right? Don't build something in new tech just to be in new tech. Because new tech has a lot of costs that they don't talk about, right? Generally, new tech is going to be promoted by, by the advocates of whatever company put it together. And they're going to be talking about all the great things it does. 
and it, I'm sure it does all like a lot of those great things, but there's also a lot of costs. There's things that they don't know. They're not going to tell you about how it breaks. So they're not going to tell you what it doesn't do or what it's not compatible with. And anything new is going to have a lot of unknowns, a lot of things that they don't know how it's going to break. They've never, they've never handled uh, every, you know, security attack vector. They've never handled the clustering and production vector. They've never handled all of these other cases that if you sign up to be running their thing in production, you might be the test case that works some of these things out. And so you'll have to kind of account for that in your in your time and effort that you're going to spend uh, building in that with that tech. Yeah, definitely. Building a product and coding is hard enough. Like being the you know patient zero is something I'm not too fond of doing. Right. You're you're already signing up to have a lot of work and a lot of frustration with your own with the challenges unique to your own platform. Don't rush into signing up for challenges that you don't have to solve. Yep. So on the flip side of best tips and lessons learned, did you make any mistakes developing this project that you fixed over time? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, one of them that I would I would suggest um, is that don't, don't wait to do your billing code until the very end. Like billing is hard. Like getting, uh -oh, uh -oh. Getting, I'm, I'm guilty as charged on that, but go on. <laughs> getting, getting your billing code working right is really hard and it's really finicky. There's a lot of edge cases that, that you don't really, that we didn't really think about until you start getting into it. Like, all right, so you set up a subscription and you take a credit card and everything works. That's the happy case. What happens if the credit card passes the initial like checks, but then fails to charge? And now they're in this delinquent case. What do you do when you get these delinquency notices? What happens after the first charge, the second charge, the third charge fail? What happens if it's partially delinquent? And like maybe last month failed, but this month worked. Now you have an old invoice that like is delinquent. How do you expose this information? There's a ton of like weird path edge cases into showing what the payment status and the invoice status is to your customer. And usually you want to do that in more than just one place. If somebody is overdue, usually you'll have to have some sort of thing that eventually takes an action, right? Like you want to lock them out of the UI. You want to show them a nagging message. You want to um, maybe even shut down their account, maybe email them, maybe do something. You have to think through like all of these different paths in setting up billing code to be fully address that concern. And uh, if you wait and make it an afterthought of like, you'll do it the week before launch. No, you won't. You won't get it all done. You'll get the happy path done. And that might be enough, but um, but you won't solve everything. Those are all very good points about uh, dealing with Stripe things that could go wrong. Because like what happens when you're expecting a webhook for an invoice created event, but it doesn't come through? Like suddenly what happens on the UI for the user then? Yeah, there's like a million cases like that. Yeah, there's so there's when you're, interacting with a tool like Stripe, there's two systems. You have to keep your system up to date with what their system is. And then you have to handle both the cases of what happens if you get conflicting information or what happens if you get no information. You can't wait to run all your logic until you get a webhook because what if that webhook never comes? Now do you just have this account that's just never going to get updated and now you're just giving free service or you're never reactivating service or you're never doing some action just because 
there's nothing on the Stripe side of it to to make the call. Right. And it's also very, very hard to set up automated tests for that because typically you're going to maybe mock out a response from Stripe in like some of your unit tests or but like, well, how are you going to test a webhook, you know, like in a unit test or on your CI server? Oh, yeah. Testing that stuff is miserable. Like anytime you need to integrate with a third party uh, for any reason, testing that stuff is is generally really hard because you can like prove out with like a mock server, but like the, the real server isn't the mock server and they're going to change their stuff without necessarily notifying you. And so like testing the whole flow end to end is not always easy. Uh, in general, we have kind of a uh, an aversion to integrating with third parties for this very reason. Like it takes a lot for us as a company to offer or to, to do some integration with a third party API just because we've suffered so much pain in testing and ensuring the, the robustness of those third party integrations that often, even if it's a little bit more work for us to do it ourselves, we'll often do that work just to avoid that pain. Uh, the yeah. only the only real exceptions to that is um, we do have an integration for Slack because you have to have an integration for Slack at this point because like, that's just what everybody uses. We have an integration with uh, Mailgun to send email because sending email is deceptively hard and we don't want to have to deal with that. And we have an integration with Stripe for payments, but that's it. Like we don't integrate with anything else. Everything else we do internally. Yeah, I'm totally on the same page. Like when it comes to things like user authentication, you can be sure that I'm going to use some library for my programming language of choice. I'm not going to reach for an external service for something like that. Yeah, I agree. So Todd, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was great having you on. Thank you so much, Nick. Yeah, no problem. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah, I'd love to. So the service we've been talking about uh, today is largely TrackJS. Uh, you can find more information about that at trackjs.com, T-R-A-C-K-J-S.com. Me on Twitter is I'm Todd H. Gardner. Uh, and if you're interested in this new thing that we're building, Request Metrics, you can find that at requestmetrics.com. We're building that service out in the open. So we're recording everything that we do and, and making these like bite-sized videos of every topic that we handle and we're publishing them for free on YouTube. So you can see how we're actually applying our ideas uh, to real code as we grow. Awesome. Yeah, I love that idea. I may end up actually watching those just for the sake because they're entertaining and you always usually come away with like a nugget or two that you can apply to your own stuff. That's awesome. I hope you do. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.